You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening. Good evening, everyone. I'm Tracy Diamond from the Programs and Publications Department at the Enon Pratt Free Library, and welcome to Writers Live in the African American Department of Central Library. We're very happy that you're joining us this evening. Tonight, we're honored to host Eugene Meyer, author of Five for Freedom, The African American Soldiers in John Brown's Army. Eugene Meyer is an award-winning journalist and author, and a former longtime reporter and editor at the Washington Post. His work has also appeared in the New York Times, US News and World Report, and many other national and regional publications. He is a contributing editor for Bethesda Magazine and lives in Silver Spring, Maryland. Five for Freedom, the African American soldiers in John Brown's army is the story of the five African American men in John Brown's army during the October 1859 raid on Harper's Ferry. Meyer tells the story of the five brave men, John Copeland, Shields Green, Dangerfield Newby, Louis Leary, and Osborne Perry Anderson. The kernel for the book began while Meyer reported a plaque dedication for the Washington Post at Osborne Perry Anderson's grave in the year 2000. As a reporter, Meyer wanted to know more of the story. Tirelessly researched, Five for Freedom accounts the circumstances which the five men were born and raised, how they came together at this fateful time and place, from Rochester, Harper's Ferry, Oberlin, Chambersburg, and more, and the legacies they left behind. Please welcome Eugene Meyer. Thank you very much and good evening. Thank you all for coming here tonight. And uh, uh, these people I've, I've written about are truly hidden figures. And uh, I'm sure all of you have heard of John Brown, you know, the famous song, his uh, body lies moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. But it's a lot less likely that you've heard of the, the five gentlemen that uh, Tracy just, uh, whose names Tracy just read to you. I'll read them again. Osborne Perry Anderson, John Anthony Copeland, Shields Green, Lewis Sheridan Leary, and Dangerfield Newby. And these were the men who joined with John Brown in his ill-fated raid on Harpers Ferry in October 1859. Um, let's set the scene. It's October 16th, 1859. It's a rainy night. Abolitionist John Brown leads 18 men down a dark country road from his farmhouse headquarters in Washington County four miles to the Potomac River and then to Harper's Ferry. Brown rides in a horse-drawn wagon. Two men carrying rifles march in front of him. Behind march the rest. They're wearing woolen shawls for warmth and they are marching in double file. They march as silently as if in a funeral procession that would later be recalled. And in fact, that's exactly what it was. The author of those words was Osborne Perry Anderson. <clears throat> he was the sole survivor, and he wrote the only insider account of the, uh, of the raid. And he was one of the five African Americans, and he was my way into the story, as Tracy indicated. Back in November 2000, it was Veterans Day weekend, 
and I covered the dedication of a plaque in his memory at the National Harmony Cemetery near FedEx Field in Landover, Maryland. And my brief account was buried inside the metro section. Probably most people um, might have missed it. And, uh, but it made a big impression on me. And uh, I wondered, I learned about the other four at the time, and I wanted to know who were they and why were they in their stories so old yet so new to so many. These men have been treated as footnotes, if at all, by historians and others captivated by the John Brown legend. It's long past time that their stories are told. That's exactly why I wrote Five for Freedom. Okay, so this is Harper's Ferry, uh, 1857, pretty much the way it looked when the raid occurred. And the Potomac River is off to the left, and you can't quite see to the right is the Shenandoah. And this is this magnificent, magnificent spot that Thomas, and Je Thomas Jefferson said was worth a voyage across the Atlantic. And uh, the arsenal is along the, the Potomac River uh, at the bottom of the hill. And then you see the, the bridge over the Potomac River where Brown and his men crossed. Oh. Okay. But as, as, as I mentioned, the story is uh, not just about how they came together at this fateful time and place, but also the world into which they were born and raised, their families, their lives and their deaths, and the aftermath and their legacies down through the generations right up to today. It's a complicated story. This is our history, always cast in black and white, but never as simple as that. It's American history, and it belongs to all of us and all of its messy complexity. When I left the Post in 2004, I wrote a much longer article for the Washington Post magazine on Osborne Anderson. It was called Soul Survivor and appeared in December of 2004. Next slide, please. And that's, the, uh, that's a page from the article, and that's a picture of Osborne Perry Anderson. During my research, I contacted a prominent John Brown scholar, Stephen B. Oates, and I asked him, why was Anderson's story so little known, or even dismissed, even by historians sympathetic to Brown? And he gave me two reasons. The first was that so little was known about him. The second was racism, pure and simple. His answers didn't discourage me. On the contrary, I took them as a challenge. In my research, I learned that Anderson was very close to a woman named Marianne Chad Carey. She was the first black female editor and publisher in North America. She was from Chester County, Pennsylvania, as was Anderson. And she had immigrated to Canada along with thousands of free and enslaved African Americans after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850. There she published The Provincial Freeman, and Anderson had followed her north, first working for her her uncle as a farmer on his farm, he didn't care for it. Then he worked for her as a printer at the newspaper. And their lives seemed to uh, proceed along parallel paths. Later on, she became a recruiter for the U.S. colored troops during the Civil War, and so did he. After the war, she moved to Washington, D.C., as did he. When he became uh, ill, some years later, she raised money for his medical care. And when he died in 1872 of tuberculosis, he raised money for his funeral. So I wondered if there was more to their relationship. And in 2007, I decided to follow up on the story. My 
speculation. In some of her papers are housed at Howard University. There in a slim file, I found nothing to support my speculation. In fact, I found nothing at all about Osborne Anderson. What I did find were heart-wrenching letters that she had published in a newspaper that were written by John Copeland to his family in Oberlin, Ohio, just prior to his execution on December 16, 1859. And with your indulgence, I'd like to read to you some of what he wrote. The last Sabbath with me on earth has passed away. I have seen declining behind me the western mountains for the last time. I beheld the soft cold moon as it rose, casting its mellow light into my felon cell, dissipating the darkness and filtering it with that soft, pleasant light which causes such thrills of joy to all those in like circumstance with myself. This morning, the last time, I beheld the glorious sun of yesterday rising in the far east, away off in the country. And as high bright light takes the place of soft moonlight, I will take my pen for the last time to write you who are bound to me by those strong ties, yea, the strongest God that God ever instituted, the ties of blood and relationship. Dear parents, brothers and sisters, it is true that I am now in a few hours to start on a journey from which no travel returns. We shall meet in heaven, where we shall not be parted by the demands of the cruel and unjust monster slavery. But think not that I am complaining, for I feel reconciled to meet my fate. I pray God that his will be done, not mine. Let me tell you that it is not the mere act of having to meet death, which I should regret, but that such an unjust institution should exist as the one which demands my life. I beg of you, one and all, that you will not grieve about me. And now, dear ones, attach no blame to anyone for my coming here, for not any person but myself is to blame. I have no antipathy against anyone. I have freed my mind of all hard feelings against every living being. And now, dear parents, brothers and sisters, I must bid you to serve your God and meet me in heaven. Dear ones, he who writes this, will in a few hours be in this world no longer. Yes, these fingers which hold the pen will before day's sun has reached the meridian have laid it aside forever, and this poor soul have taken its flight to meet its God. And now, dear ones, I must bid you that last long, sad farewell. Good day, Father, Mother, Henry, William, and Freddie, Sarah, and Mary. Serve your God and meet me in heaven. Your son and brother to eternity. John A. Cooks. I have to take a breath. There's a lot larger story here, I realized, after reading these letters, but it couldn't be just about Anderson. It had to be about all five. And this was born the idea of five for freedom. And though they're often lumped together, if they're mentioned at all, as an aside, as in five black men were also in Brown's raiding party, and I might note that uh, four were of mixed racial background, each came to Brown for different reasons and by different routes. Anderson met Brown in Chatham, Ontario in May 1858. There, Brown had convened a meeting to adopt a provisional constitution for the free republic he planned to establish in the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia. Anderson, in fact, was the convention secretary. He would be the only one among those attending who went with Brown to Harpers Ferry. In fact, nobody from that group volunteered. 
At the provincial freemen, they drew straws, and Anderson won or lost, depending on your perspective. It was Dangerfield Newby. Dangerfield Newby was the oldest of 11 children of Henry Newby, a white man, and Elsie Pollard, an enslaved woman, who was actually owned by another man, John Fox. And uh, although, and this was in Fauquier County, uh, Culpeper, Fauquier County, Virginia, and um, um, I said our history is very complicated, and it, and it is. Um, this is a good example. They lived as husband and wife, even, even though the law didn't recognize it as such. And there came a time when, when Newby wanted to free his family. And there are two ways he could do this. He could purchase them, if he had the money, or he could take them to Ohio, which is a free state. And with John Fox's permission, he did just that in 1858. Dangerfield went along with the rest of the family. He was a blacksmith, he had a trade. He also had established an enduring union with a woman in Prince William County who was also enslaved. Her name was Harriet, and she belonged to a Dr. Jennings in uh, Brentsville, which is the county seat of Prince William County. And they had as many as seven children, and he would go back and forth and maintain their relationship. And there came a time when Dr. Jennings was having financial problems. And he was going to sell Harriet and their children. Going to sell them south. And that was the worst thing that could happen to you if you were an enslaved African American uh, from the upper south. He sold to the plantation, to the, to the um, cotton plantations in Louisiana where life was much harsher. Dangerfield decided he was going to try to negotiate their purchase. And he got in contact with Dr. Jennings. And they seemed to agree on a price. And Dangerfield earned a lot of uh, what was then a lot of money applying uh, his trade in Ohio, actually made three, three deposits in the Bank of Ohio in uh, Belmont, which is right across the river from uh, Wheeling, West Virginia. That would be the equivalent of 20000 today's dollars. And then it appeared that Dr. Jennings raised his price. He wanted uh, $1,000, which would be 28000 today's money. And uh, Dangerfield didn't have that money, and he couldn't, he couldn't raise that money. And uh, so both he and Harriet were becoming increasingly, increasingly desperate and despairing. It was then that he met John Brown in Northeastern Ohio. Brown was trying to recruit African-Americans in particular for his raid at Harpers Ferry. And at first he was a little skeptical about Anubis' motives. He said, I'm not here to buy men. Anubis said, well, I'm not here to be sold. I'm, I'm one, one, two, I want to you know, free, liberate my enslaved wife and our children. And that was, that was Newby's motivation. And so he went with the, uh, went to the Kennedy farmhouse that I mentioned at the beginning. And uh, there Annie Brown, who was John Brown's daughter, one of two young women who were there helping, um, commented that they liked him a lot. He seemed very somber and, and sad. And he had asked uh, John Brown, when can I, um, when can I write to uh, Harriet? And he said, soon, Dangerfield, soon. So in the spring and summer in 1859, Harriet wrote three increasingly desperate letters to uh, the Dangerfield, which came to Ashtabula County, Ohio. I'm going to And there's a theme that runs through these letters. It's repeated, each one, where she says he is her one bright hope. And I will tell you that in the National Museum of African American History and Culture on the wall in Washington, there's nothing about these five men. There's nothing about Dangerfield Newby. There was a little plaque 
in a section about families being torn apart. And it's a quote that says, you know, you're one, my one bright hope. And it's Harry Newby, but there's no context, so we have no idea. But read these letters, you will know. So in the first letter, dated April 11th, Harry reported Mrs. Jennings, her master's wife, had been sick after giving birth to a baby girl. Harriet has had to stay with her day and night. Their own children were all well, she wrote. I want to see you very much. Oh dear Dangerfield, come this fall without fail, money or no money. I want to see you so much. That is one bright hope I have before me. She received a letter back on April 22nd and responded the same day. I wrote in my last letter that Miss Virginia had a baby, a little girl. I had to nurse her day and night. Dear Dangerfield, you cannot imagine how much I want to see you. Come as soon as you can, for nothing would give more pleasure than to see you. It is the greatest comfort I have, thinking of the promised time when you will be here. Oh, that blessed hour when I shall see you once more. Finally, on August 16th, Herod wrote again, It is said Master is in want of money. If so, I know not what time he may sell me, and then all my bright hopes of the future are blessed. For there has been one bright hope to cheer me in all my troubles. That is to be with you. Or if I thought I should never see you, this earth would have no charms for me. Do all you can for me, which I have no doubt you will. I want to see you so much. And with added urgency, she wrote, I want you to buy me as soon as possible, for if you do not get me, somebody else will. There has been one bright hope to cheer me in all my troubles, that is to be with you. Dangerfield would carry these letters with him to the farmhouse in Harpers Ferry, where he was especially interested in, in the 42nd provision in the Constitution that had been adopted in Chatham it had to do with the sanctity of families, that uh, families would, in no circumstances would be torn apart. And this was happening, you know, under the color of law in the United States of America. Can you imagine such an outrageous thing, families being torn apart, kids being taken from their parents in the United States of America under the law? It's happening now. So Dangerfield could not have foreseen that he would be the first fatality among the Raiders that Harry and their children would indeed be sold south. He could only hope, but only misery lay ahead. Second day of the raid on October 17th, he was cut down with a spike, six-inch spike, that was shot from a second-floor window by one of the townspeople. He was mortally wounded. And as he lay dying, some of the townspeople approached him and began to cut off his ears as souvenirs. And then they, they left him for the hawks, and the hogs began rooting around in his remains. And if you go to Harpers Ferry today, there's a short street, it's called Hog Alley. So now you know the origin of that name. He lay in the street for a day and a half, until finally several of the bodies of the raiders who died were removed and buried in a shallow grave half a mile up the Shenandoah River. So that takes us to Shields Green. Shields Green was uh, an escaped slave from Charleston, South Carolina. And little is known about him prior to his escape on a ship in Charleston Harbor, probably a cotton ship bound from New England, the textile mills. I did a little research. His slave name was Esau Brown. So I looked at all the, all the newspapers of Charleston Mercury for the period of time when he would have, would have fled looking for a fugitive slave ad, didn't find anything. I looked at the slave owners, and there was a, a man named Brown who had uh, a very large number of slaves. And I speculated that he was the owner of Shields Green, formerly Esau Brown. Um, Shields Green was born in 1836. 
Uh, he was 14 in 1850 in the 1850 slave census. This Mr. Brown had somebody who matched that description. And he, he uh, left after his wife died and he had a year old son. I looked in the 1860 census and there was no, uh, no male matching the age that uh, shows would have been then, but there was a, a one month old male child that could have been a son. Anyway, eventually he wound up in Rochester. And he wound up in the home of Frederick Douglass. And he lived with Frederick Douglass for a time, and there he met John Brown and learned something of his plans. And uh, Shields Green was said to be descended from African royalty. He had a nickname, it was Emperor. And he also had a business card, said he was a clothes, clothes cleaner. And there came a time when, uh, when uh, John Brown wanted to recruit a high-profile African-American to join his raid, because he thought to give him more respectability. And so he contacted Douglas up in Rochester, and they arranged to have a meeting outside of an abandoned quarry in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. So Douglas came down and brought Shields Green with him. And they spent a whole weekend in August of 1859 talking about these plans that Brown had. And Frederick Douglass just didn't think they were gonna work. He just thought they were impossible. He said to Brown, he said, <coughs> he said, you are walking into a perfect steel trap from which you will never emerge alive. Very impression of it. And as he turned to leave, it went on from all day Saturday into the early hours of Sunday, and finally was ready to go back to Rochester. And he turned to Green and said, yeah, what do you want to do, Shields? And Shields said, I think I'll go with the old man. And go with the old man he did, to Harpers Ferry. Eventually he was captured, along with Brown and others. And he was executed, tried, convicted. He was executed along with John Copeland on the same scaffold at the same time on December 16, 1859. I mentioned John Anthony Copeland. I will say one more thing about Shields Green. Frederick Douglass gave a speech in 1881 at Stora College, which was uh, on the hill overlooking Harpers Ferry. It was founded in 1867 for the newly, newly freed uh, folks who came to that area. And uh, this was a commencement speech. And he, he praised on John Brown, but he had special praise for Shields Green. And he said, should there ever be a monument to John Brown here, the name of Shields Green should be prominent on it. And of course, that didn't happen. It hasn't happened. So John Copeland and Lewis Leary, both from Oberlin, Ohio. Their families had emigrated from North Carolina. They were free people of color. Uh, Copeland's father was a carpenter. He had actually helped build the State House in Raleigh after a disastrous fire in 1833. And Lewis Leary's family was from Fayetteville. His father was a harness maker. And uh, Copeland's family uh, uh, proceeded north in the 1840s, and they, they had sort of a wagon train. There were several families. And even though they were free people of color, in order to pass without, uh, uh, without harm, unimpeded through these slave states, they would go to North Carolina and then Kentucky to get to Ohio, they had essentially letters of transit. These were testimonials from prominent white people. And that way, that if they were stopped, they could show these documents and, and uh, they wouldn't be sold back into slavery or sold into slavery, they could proceed. They went to Oberlin, which was a uniquely interesting city, even in the north, it was unique. Um, it was founded by William Baptist. They also founded the college, which was the first college in America to admit African Americans and also women. And uh, it was a place where blacks and whites went to church together. They attended integrated schools. They walked down the main street holding hands, 
And so it was as close to an equal situation as you could find anywhere in the United States. And uh, John Copeland was very active in, in the uh, abolitionist society there. And both uh, Copeland and Leary were involved in rescuing an escaped slave uh, known as the Oberlin Wellington Rescue, town of Wellington, nine miles south. It was a slave from Kentucky, John Price, who had been living sort of incognito in Oberlin for two years. And the slave captures caught up with him, and they took him to Oberlin to get on the train to take him back into slavery. So this group of men, including Oberlin and including Leary and Copeland, went down and rescued him. And uh, several were indicted for, uh, for breaking the fugitive slave law. And, uh, but the, the liberal folks in Cuyahoga County indicted the slave catchers for kidnapping and wound up with sort of a wash. But that's what happened in 18, September 1858. So they were prime candidates to join with John Brown. Leary had actually met John Brown first. He heard him speak at a rally in uh, northeastern Ohio. So he recruited John Copeland. And uh, so they left together. And Copeland told his family he was going to teach in another county, Logan County, Ohio. And Lewis Leary by then had met married a woman who was a graduate of uh, Oberlin College and had a year-old daughter. And he just up and left. He didn't say anything. And it wasn't until many days later that she learned that her husband had been killed at Harpers Ferry and why he had left. And as a kind of a footnote, um, his widow married a man named Charles Langston who moved to Kansas. They had a daughter who had a daughter who was the grandmother of Langston Hughes, the uh, famous Harlem Renaissance poet and author. So those are the five, and uh, Copeland was executed. Leary was, was fatally shot as he was trying to escape across the, across the Shenandoah River. And uh, I'm going to run out too long here. OK, we'll keep going. Um, it was interesting that um, Governor Wise of Virginia received hundreds of uh, letters, all appealing for the pardon or the commutation of John Brown's death sentence. He received virtually nothing about, about Copeland and Green. And there was one letter from an African-American organization in Philadelphia asking for their remains so they could be given a decent funeral. And they were so obsequious in their, in their uh, request that another group in Philadelphia criticized him. And uh, there was also a request from, uh, from Copeland's family in Oakland that his remains be returned so he get a decent burial. Governor Wise said, you know, no black man can come here. You can send a white person. So they sent a professor, James Madison Monroe, to uh, retrieve Copeland's body. And it was all, all seemed to be worked out. Everybody was in agreement. I guess there was a medical college in Virginia had, these, had taken these uh, remains for dissection by the students. He gets there, and you know, everybody seems in agreement. But then it turns out that the students have, uh, have taken Copeland's remains, and they've hit him somewhere in the countryside. And no uncertain terms, and not very polite language. They said, uh, you know, you may not have this nigger that works. And uh, so the faculty discouraged um, Professor Monroe from pursuing this further. It would cause too much of a disruption. So uh, James Madison Monroe went home empty-handed. And there was a, a memorial service for, uh, for Copeland. And um, they were, his parents were appreciative and made the effort. But that, that was what happened there. And uh, so John Brown, as he was being led to the gallows, in a note he handed the guard, said, I, John Brown, am now certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. And we pretty much know what happened next. The country was already polarized. In fact, several 
Southern legislatures had already enacted resolutions threatening to secede over the issue of slavery. One of the great ironies, Southern planners usually expressed great disdain for the institution of slavery, conceding its very immorality even as they profited from it. Instead, they blamed the British, who they argued had foisted the hated system on them by engaging in Atlantic slave trade. So after the Nat Turner Rebellion in Southampton County, Virginia, the August 1831, panic ripped uh, the whites in many of the slave states. And uh, in Virginia, there were 40 different petitions to the General Assembly what to do about slavery. They ranged from outright abolition and gradual emancipation to the status quo. And then one proposal was advanced by the grandson of Thomas Jefferson, who was considered a moderate. Emancipation would not be completed until 1920. So then current slaveholders would be unaffected. Virginia General Assembly couldn't muster a majority of any of these proposals. And so the tensions leading to Harper's Ferry beyond continued. It was quite a debate. It's been written about. It was really the last, uh, the only great debate about slavery in the, in the pre-war antebellum South. So much had been invested in the slave economy that ultimately money went out of a morality. So what happened next is well recorded. A bloody civil war in which as many as 750,000 persons died. Then came passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, abolishing slavery, promising due process, and granting the right to vote to former male slaves. Then the short-lived Reconstruction, followed by a harsh white backlash that produced the Jim Crow laws of racial segregation, which prevailed for more than a century, including, including attitudes that continue to fester. So, we could talk about memorials, but I'm going to fast forward to the centennial of 1959. It was on the cusp of the Civil Rights Revolution, also on the cusp of the Civil War Centennial. The powers that be, they were white, of course, didn't want to rock the boat, didn't want to upset the Southerners. So they decided that this, would, this weekend would be kind of a festive occasion. There would be no celebration of John Brown. It turned out there would be no persons of color either. The five men I wrote about um, went unmentioned. John Brown was clearly the villain. <coughs> there were Civil War reenactors dressed up as Union troops. They reenacted the capture of John Brown. When that took place, the crowd cheered. The Park Service took a lot of pictures for that weekend. I looked at 150 black and white photos. I didn't see one person of color in the entire group of them. So let's fast forward again 50 years to the sesquicentennial. The country had seemed to have changed. We had our first African-American president. The weekend was far more inclusive, including the five for freedom. The Park Service made a great effort to reach out to, we should be, I guess, sorry, we should be scrolling through. Let's open you back up and I'll just point out the, okay. Dangerfield Newby, he was the oldest, he was 39. He looks older. And it was clear that, that, that he had a lot on his mind and it was weighing on him. Let's go to the next one. So Louis Leary, he was a bit of a rake. As you can see by the tilt of his head, the next. Um, that's Shields Green. And uh, there's no photograph of him, but there are several sketches. And this is Harpers Ferry today. It looks as beautiful now as it must have been. Uh, the view from Jefferson's Rock, worth a voyage across the Atlantic. What we got next? 
already. It's a good place to stop. So, so the Park Service made a great effort to um, locate descendants from all sides of this drama. And um, there were many descendants of, of, uh, of uh, Newby, many descendants of John Copeland. Uh, they couldn't find anybody descended from Shields Green. And there were also descendants of Lewis Leary and Osborne Anderson, too, although it turned out they were collateral descendants. He didn't have any direct descendants. And uh, so they were very generous with me. They gave me their list of, of uh, descendants with the contact information. And so I was able to reach out to them and uh, conduct interviews. So one of the people I reached was this gentleman, Ashton Robinson III. It was in Cannonville, Utah, two miles off the pavement. Cannonville is a town of 160 in southern Utah. And they were, I guess, two miles from, from Cannonville and two miles off the pavement in the high desert. Now, both his parents were from Washington, D.C. Both had gone to Dunbar High School, which was the elite segregated high school. And both were fair-skinned. And they had married, they moved north, and they passed. And, they, and Ashton grew up in Tony, Western Connecticut, thinking he was Caucasian. And he worked for the agriculture department. He was a hunter. He hunted predators of sheep and, and uh, cattle and so on out in the West. And uh, there came a time when his half-brother in California found in the 1920 census that paternal grandfather had a bee next to his name, Black. So he con Ashton contacted the Mormons who were into genealogy, you may know that, and they helped him sort of put the pieces together. And he spent 25 years doing all this family research, which he generously shared with me. And uh, his dad passed away. So we went out there and spent several days with Ashton and his wife, Ellen. And, uh, and I knew the story because we talked about it and seen all the documents. We're sitting on his couch looking out the window at the Bryce Canyon, 20 miles in the distance. And he's unspooling the story and he says, uh, call his mother back in D.C. She didn't want to talk about it. There have been generations and layers and layers of lies. She even told him she'd gone to Wilson Teachers College, which was a teacher's college for whites, when she'd gone to Myers Teachers College, which was a teacher's college for blacks. And she didn't want to talk about it. She basically hung up, called her back. And she said, call your Aunt Agnes. So I called his Aunt Agnes back in Washington. And Aunt Agnes is fair skinned, but she was living in African American. And he said, and Agnes spilled the beans. And as he's telling me this, he begins to sob. And uh, it was a very emotional moment. It really brought home to me what the story is all about. Um, how, uh, you know, the, these, these existential questions who am I? What am I? Where do I fit in this American story? Um, and uh, and he's the epilogue in the book, and it kind of ties one together. And uh, so where are we now? This is a story without an ending, a journey far from completed. As a Park Service ranger told me, this is not a story of the past. This is a story from the past that is relevant to the present. And we see the relevance every day in the news headlines as race and color continue to divide define us in insidious, often horrific ways. Here's what New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrop, a white southerner, said in an interview with the New York Times. It is essential, if we really want to move forward, that we do so together. We cannot do that unless we deal forthrightly with the issue of race. And unless and until we do that, 
We're never going to reach that aspirational moment where adamantic we are one. And that's precisely the conclusion I came to after researching and writing Fight for Freedom. In order to overcome our past, the original sin of slavery, we must do more than acknowledge it. We must own it. We must own all of it and all of us. To me, that's the essential lesson and legacy of Osborne Perry Anderson, John Anthony Copeland, Shields Green, Lewis Leary, and Dangerfield Newby. They died to make us free. The struggle continues. Thank you for listening. I think we have time for some questions. I'll bring the mic to you uh, because we are podcasting the event. So yes, we'd like to have good audio. Ashton Robinson, a descendant of whom? Dangerfield Newby. It's all the book. First of all, fascinating. A um, couple of questions. Uh, one, I know this is about the five who uh, survived. I'm assuming there were some others who were who were around uh, who may not have done the journey, but were co-conspirators. Like you to talk about that, and I'd also like you to talk about uh, Brown's relationship with uh, Garrison and how that factored into uh, his conversation with Douglas prior to the raids. Well, um, as I said, only one survived. Of the five that was on the right. There were others, well, within his group of 18, or actually 22, some stayed back at the farmhouse. Right. Um, and a couple of them survived and escaped. Um, and uh, yet, Brown had financial backers. They were known as the Secret Six. They were wealthy New England abolitionists. And they uh, um, actually, Brown had hoped to conduct this raid sooner, uh, but the word got out, supposedly. It was an informant. He was actually a British guy named Forbes. And so he postponed the raid for a year and a half. He went out to Kansas. He ran up, freed some slaves from Missouri, he took them up to Canada. And then he participated in some of leading Kansas in 1858, where he earned the, the name of, uh, of uh, Potawatomi Brown. Because he and his group, including some of his sons, had engaged in the murder of five slave owning families. So there were, uh, there were others. Now Douglas was um, was suspected of being a co-conspirator, and Governor Wise actually sent uh, deputy marshals up to Rochester to look for him. And uh, Douglas, knowing that he would be suspect, um, went to Canada and he also went to England for a while. Um, so, so I don't know if that answers that part of your question. Um, we don't know a lot of, a whole lot about his relationship with William Lloyd Garrison. Um, I know that, uh, that Brown and, and Douglas had met in 1847 in a meeting in Springfield, Massachusetts. And uh, there were a number of, number of individuals. There was William Nell, who published a newspaper in Boston. A number of these people uh, were supporters of Osborne Anderson after, the, after he escaped and helped him raise money for his uh, publication. Um, they had secret meetings and many people chipped in. You know, $75, which is probably the equivalent of several hundred dollars today. So, and none of the, the secret six were ever 
indicted or charged. None of them were, you know, they, they uh, looted prosecution. By escaping? No, they just stayed in there for New England. Cool. And I, I will tell you that it's inter what's interesting to me is I researched this, that a number of the uh, um, these backers, I don't let me say specifically which ones, in the abstract were all for abolition, but they had very really <coughs> stereotypical views of black people uh, as, as you know, inferior to whites. And that was probably not uncommon at the time. So why support this cause? They were, they were for abolition, but they, they weren't for equality. And they didn't believe in, that blacks and whites could <coughs> John Brown was not, noticeably different. I mean, he, you know, and I don't like to talk about John Brown. I always say, I, don't, I, don't I don't have a position on John Brown and maybe talk about Five for Freedom. But I will say that John Brown, from what I read, um, really just uh, believed in people as people. It may have been his upbringing. I mean, he was, his father was a, an early trustee at Oakland College. Although he was born in Connecticut, he was brought up in Northeast Ohio. So he was very, very heavily influenced by that whole ethos. <clears throat> More of a comment than a question. And I noticed the parallel between Uncle Thomas and the gentleman who went in, um, was going to be sold, him and his wife, they were going That's the thing with Uncle Thomas' cat, which, in my view, is the most misunderstood, misrepresented nature of Uncle Thomas in uh, American folklore. I agree with you. And also, when they moved into Ohio parallels, the Supreme Court decision of 1857, Judge Scott decision, in which the Supreme Court ruled that no Negro had any rights to the white man was bound to respect. So moving into Ohio, in, in fact, took his case to Ohio, his slave into Ohio, and he said because going in there, he was now a free man. And the Supreme Court overruled his decision. Well, then, I'd like to point out one other thing, is that 1837, the Amistad and Joseph Simpson went to the Supreme Court, and they were free on the murders uh, of the Amistad, the captain, and so forth on the Amistad. The same Supreme Court Justice, Roger B. Tanner, was the Supreme Court Justice in 1857. Well, one of the interesting things about um, the Dred Scott decision, the defense, the, the, the lawyers, the lawyer represented Copeland and Green, argued that they couldn't be tried, couldn't be prosecuted for treason because under the Dred Scott decision, they were not citizens and therefore they could not commit treason. And he actually got those counts dismissed, which you know, I don't know if that's a pirate victory. Now some people, you know, African Americans were insulted by that. That, that you know, they, they would rather be tried for treason as citizens than let off the hook because they couldn't be considered people. So. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, uh, for sharing uh, the, the, these immense lives with us. Um, I guess it's, it's um, widely thought that John Brown 
John Brown's motivation was he really thought that he was would that his attack on Harper's Ferry would ultimately incite a rebellion, enslave people all up and down, uh, I guess the Shenandoah Valley, and and, and uh, you know obviously that was uh, of course Douglas had the reaction that he did, but I wonder if in your research. Um, the, the, these five men, in terms of what those who, the ones who did leave um, letters and documents behind, did they, did you sense that they, they shared Brown's belief that this really could incite, immediately incite a rebellion, or this could, or this was something worth participating in for, a, as a symbolic uh, attack that might have long-term gains? Well, that's interesting. Uh, Brown kept the, the details of his the attack very close to the best. It wasn't until um, you know the, the day before that these men all learned the, the details. And this was one of Copeland's defenses. He thought they were just going to you know run off slaves to the north. They were going to go north, not south. And so there was a there was a temporary rebellion within the rebellion. And in fact, uh, John Cook, who was one of the white raiders and actually lived there for a year and married a local woman who was sent home to cool off. And ultimately, uh, they decided they were going to go with their commander, even if they didn't agree with him. Now, the idea was that, that uh, local slaves would join Brown, and Brown had actually intended to stage this raid a week later, but then he, there were some rumors in the neighborhood that something was going to happen. And so he moved the date up. And so, um, so these, these men who were prepared to join him didn't know about the change of plans. Now, the, the, this white southern um, version of this was that, you know, there were no unhappy slaves. They didn't rebel. And, you know, that's this proves it. But in fact, after the, after the trials, the, the jurors were all white, they're all slave owners. So was the judge, so was the prosecutor, all the gentry that owned slaves. And so was the mayor of Harpers Ferry, who was a good friend of, of Hayward Shepard, who was the first fatality, he was an African American man worked for the railroad. Um, but um, so that so that these jurors were all farmers in the area. And so following the, the verdict and executions, um, their barns were burned, their crops were torched. And so there was a strong sense that this was the rebellion that, uh, that Brown was hoping for, and it just the timing was off, so it didn't materialize. But yeah, Brown had planned to go off into the Appalachian, the Bluish Mountains, and wage kind of guerrilla war down into the valley and just create, you know, chaos and, and, uh, and slavery. And, uh, and he made some tactical decisions at Harpers Ferry that uh, uh, that sort of doomed his mission to failure if it had any chance of success to begin with. But I can talk about that really briefly. He took hostages, and he was very indulgent toward them. He let them go out and visit with family members, and that slowed things down. And then a train, a B&O train, was coming from the west, and uh, it was held up for a while, and Brown thought if he let it go through, it would show his honorable intentions. But what it did was, when he got to Monocacy Junction in February, he tipped off the feds. And President Buchanan sent Colonel Robert E. Lee and 90 Marines and ended this whole um, affair after 36 hours. And in fact, some of the uh, some of, of the 
55 who were stationed at the rifle works by the Shenandoah River were getting impatient. They thought it was time. They thought the door was closing and it was time to leave. And um, Louis Leary had sent word back to John Brown, who was in the Arsenal Firehouse, became known as John Brown's Fort. And, and Brown kept saying, no, not yet, not yet. And um, so that's, that's kind of how it evolved. I wonder if you um, might uh, talk a little bit about the Kennedy Farmhouse, where these guys hid out for a couple of years. Um, it's, it, of course, it's a great place to visit. You can still visit it. Um, and I think a lot of visitors to Harpers Ferry actually don't see the Kennedy Farmhouse, which I guess is a mile or so away. But if you know, like, you know, who was Kennedy? What were the arrangements? Uh, and how did they sure. hang out there for so long without getting detected? Well, Dr. Booth Kennedy actually died. This is a state that owned the house. And Brown arrived at, under the name of Isaac Smith with one of his sons at Sandy Hook and let him know that he was a cattleman, he was looking for a farm. And so he rented this place for uh, $75 in gold, which would have been much more in today's money, for nine months. And, uh, <clears throat> uh, and it's a fascinating place. It's been restored to its, its appearance uh, from the 1850s. But actually, there's a great book called From John Brown to James Brown. And um, uh, in the 20th century, it became a, it was owned by the Black Elks. And it became a, a, an important stop on the, what was known as the Chippen Circuit. All these entertainers, these famous entertainers would go there. And this was during segregation. And, you know, African-American folks would come and dance and enjoy the show. And, and then ultimately, it was purchased by a man named uh, Lynn South. Actually, a descendant from a Confederate slave owners, but they restored the uh, county farmhouse and they have a foundation, and um, so it looks pretty much the way it did that. And that's the story. I will say one other thing: while they were hiding out in this farmhouse, um, there, were, there were slaves who, who uh, it's a slave who committed suicide in one of the orchards because he heard his wife was sold south. So that was. Pardon me? Sold south. So, uh, and they managed to stay inside, and the, the daughter and daughter-in-law, John Brown, were there to sort of create an air of domesticity, if you will. And husband and wrote in the evenings, they would go out and ramble, and they would take in the, you know, the, the stars and uh, the countryside. And, uh, but, you know, there were rumors that things were going to happen, so John Brown moved the calendar up, and that was one of the things that may have contributed to its failure. Since high school, I've always heard uh, that there was an intertwining of economics, uh, more so than emancipation, in the freedom of slavery, you know, allowing slaves to become free. In your research, did you find any echoes of that issue that the Civil War was also based on you know, economics. <clears throat> I know you said that there were a couple of people who were involved with uh, John Brown from New England who had uh, put up money to, for this to happen. 
And then I heard someone else say that there were only five people, so it was known to be doomed from the beginning. So it seems like there are some intertwining things going on. But my main question is, from your research, did you find that the freedom of slavery or the freedom of slaves was based more so on economic because the North was moving into an industrial age and the South was still dealing with slavery and that there were economics involved in this in any way? Did you find any of that in your research? Well, I mean, the whole system was based on economics. It was, uh, uh, it was to the benefit of the slave owners to have this free labor. Right, and, and, uh, and the South, the North didn't have And the textile owners in the, in the North, you know, had a, a trading arrangement with the South, so they, you know, there, was, there were also people in the North who were not so opposed to slavery because they were, they were then on getting the cotton crop. But what about the industrial age coming in? Because it seems like from, from the industrial age was coming in at the same time as when the Civil War began. So the Northerners had a, they didn't have that free labor as so the South did, and therefore there was there was an economic issue involved in there as to the freedom of you know, slaves becoming free and emancipation. There were more, there's deeper issues, there's deeper reasons as to why slaves were, you know, given their freedom. It wasn't because it was a, a social issue altogether. Some of it was a social issue. Some people had a, a serious conscience about it and they thought it was wrong and they fought for it. We had abolitionists and Quakers and people who also fought against it because it, it, they felt it morally wrong. But there seems like there was another issue going on, that there were economics involved. And that's why the money was flowing in, because these were rich people from the north who had an interest in the industrial age coming in. And but there was something intertwined with all of that. But maybe, perhaps I'm not sure on information about that. I mean, I know that in the Upper South, anyway, um, the, the crops changed uh, from you know tobacco, uh, which is labor-intensive, to small farms, dairy farms. And so a lot of the slave owners were hiring their, their slaves out uh, as tradesmen. I mean, Dangerfield Newby worked on the Rappahannock Canal. And uh, in fact, there was a, a lawsuit that uh, uh, John Fox had sued somebody who hadn't paid him for Dangerfield Newby's services. And they settled over, uh, I think the settlement was a winter coat. Right, but Dangerfield was free. He was free. His wife well, he eventually free. became free, but he, he was born enslaved. Well, I thought his father, his father was a white man. Was, well, he was a white man, but they married, or, or they were together, or he bought his wife so that he could, he could Put it on the down low that he well, had a mixed situation well, going not, on there. Not exactly. Yeah. His, his wife was, and children were still enslaved by John Fox, even though Henry Newby and, and Elsie um, maintained a, you know, a marriage in, in all other respects. I mean, it's, as I said, our history is very complicated. Right. And there are other instances um, similar to that. 
Um, because when my when my uh, research, she was born free because his father and his mother were married and blah blah blah. But getting back right to the issue of the of the economics, you're saying that you never. I mean, because you're talking about coke. I'm talking about real money. I'm talking about industrialized money, and this coincided at the same time. Slavery ended, or the Civil War and emancipation and all that other part of history coincided with the Industrial Revolution. That and that the North had a vested interest because they did not have the free labor that the South had. So there, there became an issue that I heard you say that there were some uh, backers from the North who had money. And so, like I said, I've heard this since the 70s, since high school and, and, and you know, classes class in college, blah, blah, blah. I've heard that throughout my life, that if there was an economic issue going on. Well, I'd like to know more about that. Underlying, and it was at, uh, Underlying economic issues. Yeah, I mean, the emancipation <coughs> of slavery because of, you know, it is wrong and da 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 da. The northern industrialists were dependent on, essentially, on the slave labor producing all this cotton that they were turned to, you know, to garments and export England. So, but that's contrary to what you're suggesting. I don't know. I didn't really find that in Texas. <laughs> We'll do, do you both have questions? Two more questions. Yeah, thank you very much for your presentation. I know that you started off by saying hidden figures, uh, referencing the movie and uh, Black History Central. Because so much of our history has been obfuscated and omitted when we've been so essential to uh, history. Uh, another thing you mentioned, uh, <coughs> Nick, uh, the guy who was killed in the evening was too That was Dangerfield Newby. Dangerfield Newby. Dangerfield Newby, yes. That eerily reminded me of uh, him laying in the street for four days. Eerily reminded me of uh, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, when shot by the police laying in the street for four, at least four days, I believe. And. Uh, it's supposed to show you that that racism is so prevalent still in America. And, uh, I believe that seen by Nina Simone is correct when she says slavery has never been abolished from America's way of thinking. Mm -hmm. I agree. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for your presentation. You mentioned uh, the National Army Cemetery yeah. outside of Washington. So how did uh, Osborne Anderson wind up outside of Washington? Well, thank you for asking. That's an interesting question. Uh, the original Harmony Cemetery was, was down along Rhode Island Avenue where the Rhode Island Avenue Metro is. The original Harmony Cemetery was an African-American cemetery. It was in the country. It's now, then the Rhode Island Metro station is there. And so in the, in the 1950s, there was some Public Works project was preceded the metro, so 30, 39,000 remains were uh, disinterred from that location, and they were moved up to this new cemetery, National Harmony Cemetery, near FedEx Field in Landover. And Osborne Anderson had been buried 
from the original Harmony Cemetery, as had Mary Ann Chet Carey. Uh, and so it's presumed that, uh, that they're out there as Landover, but the records for that period don't exist. So when they dedicated this plaque, they had a kind of guess that you know, this is an area of unmarked graves, and this is probably where, where he was reburied. So that's the, that's the history of, of that cemetery. Does that answer your question? Well, I was interested in how he talked up before he died or in Washington. Um, well, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I theorize that it was because of his relationship with Marianne Chet Carey. And, uh, and his, some people think that he enlisted in the, in the Union Army, but there's no hard evidence of that, and that he was discharged in Washington, D.C. from the service. But there's no evidence to prove that. It could be that. Uh, I think in 1866, he was in Detroit. He was at a, a black political convention, and then, then he came to DC, but so did she. And as I said, you know, he seemed to follow her everywhere. And she also helped him uh, write his book. So they were very close, so I, I just you know, speculated that there was more to that relationship, which I didn't find that. But I suspect that's why. He also lived in Philadelphia with a man named Alfie Green. And then they both moved out to D.C. and they lived together at 14th and Constitution. He had a job as a messenger. And he listed in the 1873 city directory. Well, he died December 1872 and already been printed. And so that's what we know about it. And he was really little known until his death. And, and then there was a big funeral at the 15th Street Baptist Church. And, and um, Frederick Douglass' one friend of his sons was was a pallbearer, and his father would turn him away after he escaped from Harpers Ferry was was there, and uh, suddenly he became this you know the famous survivor of the raid, whereas for you know the previous twenty years or so he'd been ignored basically, and uh, he died impoverished with tuberculosis. It was, it was a sad ending. So, Thank you, Gene, so much for sharing your research, and thank you all for spending your evening with us. Um, the Ivy Bookshop has books for sale in the hallway, and Gene will be signing them. We'll put the screen down. Um, and if you have any additional questions, you can ask them. But thank you again. One more round of applause. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.